We read the Holy Scriptures this morning in Psalm 32. Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer, Selah. I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin, Selah. For this shall every one that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Be ye not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. I call your attention to verses 1 and 2 of the psalm. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the theme of this psalm is the blessedness of the man whose sins are forgiven, whose transgressions are covered, and unto whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. We could translate that word blessed in verse 1, Oh, the blessedness, because the psalmist is making an exclamation right from the start. Oh, the blessedness the great, great blessedness of the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. The psalmist does not write about these things, we might say, as a systematic theologian, setting forth the doctrine of forgiveness in a systematic manner, but rather the psalmist writes as a man who has sinned against his God, and against his neighbor. He writes as a man who then proceeded to cover up his sin and for a very long time hid his sin 
and refused to confess it. He writes, as a man who, having covered his sin, felt the heavy burden of the hand of God pressing down upon him until, as he puts it, the moisture was turned into the drought of summer and his bones waxed old through his roaring all the day long. He writes, as a man who heard the rebuke of the Lord from his prophet, a rebuke for his sins and transgressions, and who, hearing that rebuke, was deeply humbled and ashamed of himself, and who was brought by the grace of God to confess his transgressions to the Lord. And he writes as a man who experienced the great, great blessedness of the forgiveness of sins. When he heard that declaration of forgiveness from the prophet of the Lord, the man who wrote this psalm was filled with great happiness. Such tremendous joy filled his soul that he had to write it down. He had to write his experience. And as he was wont to do as a psalmist, he picked up the pen and wrote down on paper Psalm 32. Oh, the blessedness, he writes, of the man whose sin is forgiven and covered. Let's consider together before we take the Lord's Supper the blessed, forgiven man. Notice, first of all, forgiven man. Secondly, penitent man. And thirdly, blessed man. The psalm focuses on the blessedness of the man who experiences the forgiveness of his sins. As we said, the experience of the psalmist stands in the background of this psalm. He is not writing as a dogmatician or a theologian. He's writing as someone who experienced the things that he writes about. And what he experienced was sin and forgiveness, shame and pardon. He uses three statements to describe the blessed forgiveness that he experienced. First of all, he says, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Transgression is a word that refers to the breaking of a law, a violation of a commandment. God has given us his law, and God in his law requires us to live a certain way. He requires us to love him with all of our heart and to love our neighbor as ourselves. In his law, God forbids us to do certain things. For example, he forbids us to commit adultery with our neighbor's wife. And he even forbids us to covet our neighbor's wife. He forbids us to have any kinds of sexual lusts of immorality in our hearts. God also forbids that we kill our neighbor, that we murder him for one reason or another. He forbids that we hate the neighbor, that we are angry with him in our hearts, that we desire revenge against him. And if we do any of those things, we are transgressing his law. The man who wrote this psalm did those very things. 
He coveted his neighbor's wife one day as he was standing on the roof of his house and he saw her bathing nearby. He lusted after her beauty in his heart, even though she did not belong to him. And then he sent messengers to her house to take her to himself. And he brought her into his bedroom and he lay with her. And by that act, he committed adultery against his own wife. He committed adultery against her husband. And he committed adultery against her. But then to cover up his transgression of God's law, he decided to order that her husband be sent to the front lines of the battle in the hopes that he would be killed there. And so he was sent to the very front lines and he was killed. And by that act, he murdered his neighbor to cover up his own transgressions. Because of his transgression of the law of God, the psalmist became worthy of the curse of that law. The curse of God's law against the sinner is that the sinner must die. The sinner must die the everlasting death. And the psalmist made himself worthy of that curse and that punishment. But his conscience smote him when God sent his prophet to him and rebuked him for his transgression. And when his conscience smote him, he was sorry for his sin. And the prophet declared forgiveness to him. The prophet said to the man who committed those sins, The Lord has forgiven your transgression. You will not die. And when he heard that declaration from the servant of the Lord, the Lord has forgiven your transgression, you will not die. His heart was flooded with the joy and the blessedness of the forgiveness of his sins. God was declaring to him, I forgive you. All of those evil deeds that you did, all of those transgressions of my law, and all that you deserve, I forgive it. And that word for forgiveness in the original language, means to lift up and to take away. The Lord was saying to him, I lift up that transgression of my law, all of those dirty, awful, wicked transgressions, and I take them away, I carry them away, I carry them far, far away from you, and I will remember them no more. I will not hold them against you. I will pardon your iniquity. I have pardoned your iniquity. Oh, the blessedness of the man whose transgression is forgiven, he writes. Because having heard that word of forgiveness, that declaration of forgiveness, also in the depth of his heart and conscience, he felt that burden of transgression lift off his soul, and he felt it carried far away. In the second place, he describes it this way. Blessed is the man whose sin is covered. The word sin is another word that describes the very same evil deeds of the psalmist. The word for sin in the original language means a missing of the mark. God provides a mark or a target for us, and we are to aim at that target in all of our words and actions and thoughts and desires. And the target And the bullseye of that target is God himself and his glory and the honor of his name. So that we are to aim all of our actions at 
God and his glory. And the psalmist knew all about targets and aiming at the bullseye of the target because, as you know, the psalmist was King David. And he was a man who knew very well how to use the bow and the arrow. And many times he had shot his arrow at targets, aiming for the center, the bullseye. And no doubt he was a good archer and many times hit the bullseye of the target. But in this particular case, he turned around from the target. He turned away from his God and the glory of his God, and he aimed the arrow at himself. He aimed at his own pleasure. He aimed at gratifying his own lusts, his own desires, what I want, me, me, what I want. And he took his neighbor's wife and satisfied his gross sexual lust with her. And then, still aiming at his own glory, he did not want to be put to shame before the people when she became pregnant. And knowing the danger of being exposed and being put to shame before the eyes of the Israelites, he murdered her husband to cover it up. He murdered Uriah the Hittite when Bathsheba became pregnant, hoping, hoping that he could hide his transgression, hoping that he could cover it up, hoping that he would not be put to shame before the eyes of the world. But the scripture says that God saw what he did and was displeased. He didn't aim at God and God's glory, but he was aiming at himself. And yet, the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to him, And Nathan declared to David in the agony and misery of his soul, the Lord has covered your sin. Your great evil in which you turned your back on God and aimed at yourself, the Lord has covered it, David. He has covered it over. And Nathan didn't mean by that that God had covered up David's sin. He didn't mean that God was complicit with David in his sin, that God was going to hide David's sin so that nobody would see it, nobody would know about it. There would be no shame and there would be no consequences. In fact, God exposed David's sin. God exposed it in the most public way you can imagine. He inspired a man to write it down on the pages of Scripture so that millions upon millions of people from that day on would read about the sin of David. The lamentable, melancholy fall of that man after God's own heart who committed such sexual evil and murdered to cover it up. No, God would not cover it up, but God would cover it. God did cover it. He would cover it with the blood of atonement. He would cover David's dark wickedness with the blood of a lamb without spot or blemish. And that blood of that perfect, spotless, pure, holy lamb would totally cover over the sin of David so that God would see it no more. That's what it means that God covers the sin of his people. And he covers it in our conscience as well. So that that sin that we experience of raging against our conscience, accusing our conscience, he covers it with the blood of that lamb so that we have peace. 
How blessed is he whose sin is covered. And in the third place, David writes, Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. Iniquity is a third word that David uses to describe the wickedness that he had done. The word iniquity refers to a deviation from a straight path. God has laid down a straight path that we are to walk. That's the path of his commandments. Iniquity means that you stray from that path to one side or to the other side. You deviate from it. You don't walk in the path that God has set down. And because of that, you become guilty. So the word iniquity also carries the idea of guilt. And it can be translated guilt. David had become guilty before God by his sin and by his actions. And therefore David deserved the imputation of his guilt to his account. David was the king of Israel, and so David knew all about imputation. David knew what it was to judge an action and to impute the guilt of a man to the man who had done that action. David had judged men himself, no doubt, as the king, and he had authorized the judges of the land to impute guilt to the wicked and righteousness to the righteous. But now David was the wicked, and David deserved to have the judge of heaven and earth impute his guilt to his account. He deserved to hear in the heavenly courtroom God say to him, I find this man guilty because he did the crime. He committed adultery. He committed murder. He's guilty. He deserved condemnation. He deserved to be cast into the everlasting prison of hell. But the judge of heaven and earth against whom he sinned sent his servant to David and declared to him, I do not impute your guilt to you. I do not impute your iniquity to your account. I do not condemn you. He declared that to David so that David heard in his heart the very word of God not condemning him, not imputing his guilt to him, declaring him to be innocent. Oh, the blessedness of the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. How can this be? How can it be that God who is just and righteous and holy, who says in the scripture, I will by no means clear the guilty, yet he cleared the guilty when he said to David, I do not impute your iniquity to you. How can this be? Because God in his justice imputed David's iniquity to someone else. He imputed David's guilt to Christ. He took all of the guilt of David's transgression, his sin, his iniquity, his terrible misdeeds, and he imputed them to Christ. He imputed them to his own son who was still to come in the flesh. And the Lord Jesus Christ who would come would take that imputation upon himself, would take responsibility upon himself for all of the sins of David and for all of your sins and for all of mine. All of our transgressions, all of our 
missing of the mark and all of our iniquity and guilt, the Lord Jesus Christ takes it upon himself so that we who deserve the curse of death, he received that curse. We who deserve to be put to shame, he was put to shame. We who deserve to be condemned, he was condemned on the cross. On the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ gave his blessed body to be broken and his precious blood to be shed so that through his precious blood, suffering all of the curse and the suffering and the wrath of God in our place, that sin would be covered over with that blood. That sin would be lifted up and carried away and remembered no more. That guilt would not be imputed to us, but rather his righteousness would be imputed to us. Whereas God forgives, covers, and does not impute our iniquities to us, he does impute something to us. He imputes to us something that we did not earn, something that we did not merit, something that has nothing to do with our works. He imputes to us the righteousness of Christ. In Romans 4, the Apostle Paul explains the psalm in that way. And as we know, we are to interpret Scripture with Scripture. To fully understand what David meant when he wrote this psalm, we have to look at the New Testament. And what did Paul say about that psalm? He said this in Romans 4, But to him that worketh not, but believeth, on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness, even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. The Apostle Paul teaches us what David means. He means this. God does not impute your sin to you, but he graciously imputes the righteousness of Christ. And how does he do that? Paul teaches us by faith. He justifies the ungodly. He doesn't justify us who are righteous in ourselves. He doesn't justify us because of the works that we have done. He justifies the ungodly by faith. His faith is counted for righteousness. Believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And by faith, God justifies you. God imputes that righteousness without works. God grants us this forgiveness and this experience of forgiveness by faith alone in Christ alone. Why? Because all of that forgiveness and all of that righteousness is in Christ alone. It comes from Christ alone. And therefore, it's by faith in Christ alone that we receive it. And God is pleased to give us that experience in the way of repentance. Penitent man 
The final thing that David writes in the text is this. Blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no guile. The word for guile means deceit, deception. In that fourth phrase of the text, David is not giving just another word for sin as he does in the first three phrases. David is not just expressing in another way that his guile has been forgiven, but he's speaking of deceit, which is the refusal of the sinner to confess his sin. He's speaking of deceit in the sense that the sinner deceives himself and does not repent. In 1 John chapter 1, the Apostle John says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. David speaks as a man who has experienced this guile, this deceit. He's speaking of his own experience. When he sinned, he hardened his heart. He deceived himself. And he said to himself, I have done nothing wrong. I have done no sin. I am not guilty. I had a right to do that. He deceived himself to actually think that. To actually believe that. And he refused to confess, to acknowledge his transgressions. He describes it to us in verses 3 and 4. In whose spirit there is no guile. The very next thing he says, When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. He was deceiving himself. He was keeping silence. He was trying to hide his sin, to cover up his sin. He was refusing to acknowledge his sin. He was minimizing it. He was excusing it. He was justifying it. He was deceiving himself. And when he did that, his bones waxed old because he is a child of God. And as a child of God, his bones within him waxed old. He felt like he was becoming an old man as his body was roaring and quivering and quaking within himself. The moisture, the very life sap of his body seemed to dry up and he seemed to wither away in his soul turning into the drought of summer, as if all of the joy of life was just zapped and disappeared because he refused to confess his transgression. And no doubt the devil played a role in that. He's the great deceiver, tempting David to harden his heart. God will not allow his children to remain deceived. God came to David in his grace. Irresistible, sovereign, powerful grace. And he broke that hard heart. God comes and he works repentance in the hearts of his people whom he has chosen and redeemed. 
He humbles us. He breaks us down. He uses many different means. He uses afflictions, trials, consequences, rebukes, admonitions, and many other means to break down our hard heart so that we soften our hearts and acknowledge our transgressions. In David's case, God sent to him Nathan the prophet. After a long time of hardening his heart and deceiving himself and refusing to repent, God sent Nathan the prophet to him. And Nathan told him a little story. He said there were two men, a rich man and a poor man. The rich man had many sheep, so he had sheep to spare, but the poor man had one little ewe lamb. And that's all he had. The rich man had a guest one day, and the rich man did not want to take any of his sheep, so he reached out his hand and stole the one precious little lamb of his poor neighbor. And he took that and killed it and served it to his guest. When David heard that little story, he was outraged. And he said, the man who has done this thing will surely die. David recognized through that story that that man was a transgressor of the law and deserved to die. And it was in that moment that Nathan pointed the finger at him and said, Thou art the man. You, you are the man. And that was how God humbled him and brought him to confess, I have sinned against the Lord. Does God do, does God do that in our lives as well? When we come to church and we hear the preaching of the law, we hear the preaching of sin, the minister doesn't point at any one individual in the sermons. But as we are listening to the preaching of God's law, do we hear God pointing the finger at us and saying, now don't think about the person sitting next to you or down the pew or on the other side of the sanctuary. You are the man. You. God humbles us in that way. And he drives us to repentance. And God is pleased to give us the experience of forgiveness in the way of repentance. In the way of repentance, not in any other way. By means of faith alone, in Christ alone, because that forgiveness and righteousness comes from Christ. It can only be received by faith and in the way of repentance. Not because of that repentance, not that it depends on our act of repentance, not that that repentance is in any way, shape, or form a work that we must do in order to obtain that repentance, but God calls us to repent, and in the way of repentance, He gives us the experience of forgiveness. That was David's experience. Nathan said to him, And God hath forgiven your sin, you shall not die. David went back home. We can imagine him sitting in his house, pondering 
that amazing word of grace, God has forgiven my sin. I'm not going to die. Picking up the pen, he wrote, Blessed, blessed man. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no longer any guile. Blessed is that man. As a sinner, I looked for happiness in the wrong place by snatching my neighbor's wife. I looked for happiness by covering up my sin. I looked for happiness through sin. I was wrong. And how empty and vain that earthly sinful happiness is. The ungodly sinner who do not have Christ and who do not have forgiveness, they perish in hell for all eternity with their earthly happiness. But oh, the blessedness and the happiness and the joy and the peace and the rest that belong to those who know that their transgressions are all forgiven. That God does not impute our iniquity to us. That he imputes to us the righteousness of Christ who died for us. That brings tears of joy to the man and the woman who knows his sin. The greatness and the wretchedness of his sin but also the greatness of the mercy of God. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, we give thanks to thee for the blessedness of forgiveness. Thou art truly a merciful and gracious God. Thou hast reached down to us poor sinners, and thou hast sent thy Son to shed his precious blood on the cross. We thank thee now for that gospel and that we can remember his broken body and shed blood by the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Bless us now through that sacrament that we might be comforted in the depths of our souls that we are right with thee and forgiven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.